Hello, and welcome to All Things Plantagenet. My name is Donnie Hazel, and I am your host. To all of my original listeners, welcome back. To those new to the show, welcome. I am a storytelling historian with a great love for the Plantagenet dynasty, as I am a direct descendant to Geoffrey of Anjou via my paternal line on my grandmother Carter's side. I descend through Diana Skipwith, daughter of Sir Henry Skipwith and Amy Kemp. Diana married Captain Thomas Carter. They immigrated to the Americas in 1650, settling in Barford in Lancaster County, Virginia. So with that said, please like and download the show as it helps other listeners learn about the show. If you wish to support this podcast, there is a link for you to do so, and it would be much appreciated as it would help with costs of maintaining the website www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find the podcast as well as extra items for each episode you can read or download. You can also find great books and videos for sale as well. Feel free to also visit our Facebook page. A link is provided as well on the website. Okay, on to the episode. Stories from the pages of time. Stories of triumph and tragedy, adventure and achievement, as we go in search of history. In late summer of 1483, guards at the Tower of London recount seeing two small boys, heirs to England's throne, playing bows and arrows together in front of their royal residence. It is the last official word of their existence. From that day on, the two little princes are never heard from again. What fate was suffered by these two innocents? What role did their uncle, the ambitious King Richard III, play in their disappearance? Could two skeletons found buried under an ancient stairway hold the answers? We'll go in search of history to solve the baffling mystery of the missing princes of England. Sixteen seventy-four, workmen charged with the demolition of an ancient staircase in the centuries-old Tower of London uncover what appear to be the skeletons of two children. The discovery reignites a controversy then already two hundred years old. Could these be the bones of two former heirs to England's throne, Prince Edward and his brother Richard? last seen in 1483, while under the care of their uncle, King Richard III. Are the skeletons evidence of a diabolical murder, or part of a centuries-old conspiracy to destroy the reputation of one of England's finest kings? To solve this mystery, Perhaps the first step is to examine the writings that have fixed Richard III in the popular imagination as a hunchbacked villain capable of murdering innocents, writings created in a politically charged atmosphere of rivalry between competing family dynasties. In the fall of 1592, Patrons of London's Globe Theatre were treated to the premiere of a new play by the popular writer William Shakespeare. 
Now is the winter of our discontent, made glorious summer by this son of York. And all the clouds that lowered upon our house in the deep bosom of the ocean buried. The tragedy of King Richard III was the saga of an evil monarch who reigned over 100 years earlier. The new play was an instant hit, but was it based on fact or fiction? When Shakespeare's Richard opened, Queen Elizabeth I sat on the throne, the latest in an uninterrupted line of Tudor monarchs, starting with Elizabeth's grandfather, Henry Tudor, who himself had defeated the real Richard III in battle. Upon seizing power over Richard's family, the Yorkist dynasty, the Tudors immediately paid royal historians to tell the Tudor version of their family's ascendance. Not daring to disappoint their Tudor patrons, these writers didn't paint a pretty picture of Richard or his York family. He was close and secret, a deep dissembler, lowly of countenance, and arrogant of heart, Sir Thomas More. Thomas More's biography made him truly monstrous. And there were earlier stories of Richard in the Chronicles that Shakespeare consulted. All of them emphasize a kind of deformity and a kind of evil. But we have to remember that those historians were being paid by the Tudor sovereigns who had a great stake in showing that the last of the York kings was evil to legitimate the triumph of Henry Tudor coming in and becoming Henry VII of England. So Shakespeare's sources are biased to begin with. Shakespeare's Richard was a wretch without peer, a heartless despot who could convincingly intone Conscience is but a word that cowards use, devised at first to keep the strong in awe. Our strong arms be our conscience, swords our law. In the play, Richard is responsible for no less than five murders, the most dastardly of which is the cold-blooded killing of his two nephews, the rightful heirs to the throne he usurped. That has engendered tremendous historical controversy and debate because I think we have no solid evidence that the historical Richard did this. But the legend was that he did. And I think it raises the historical question, who was the real Richard? We need to know because history is a matter of fact and we have to know was this very charming monster that Shakespeare created on the stage anything like the actual King Richard? The search for the man who would come to embody royal corruption and preside over the end of a kingdom begins in England's cold and rugged North Country. Born on October the 2nd, 1452, Richard Plantagenet was born the 12th of 13 children in a prominent aristocratic family. One of the many myths about Richard III put forth by Thomas More, Shakespeare, and others and still widely believed, is that Richard was somehow deformed at birth, perhaps a hunchback. I that am curtailed of this fair proportion, 
cheated of feature by dissembling nature. Deformed, unfinished, sent before my time into this breathing world, scarce half made up. And therefore, since I cannot prove a lover to entertain these fair, well-spoken days, I am determined to prove a villain and hate the idle pleasures of these days. Though Richard was described as being smaller of build than his statuesque older brother Edward, there's little evidence that he bore any physical abnormalities. The contemporary descriptions of Richard, none of them mention a limp, a withered arm, or a arm back. He cannot have had a withered arm because he was a soldier. And someone would comment on the fact that he was a good soldier despite having a withered arm. So as a man, he was a perfectly normal human being to look at, I'm sure. Richard's father was the Duke of York, a prince of royal blood already chafing at his inability to claim England's throne. His family, the Yorkists, represented by a white rose, were enmeshed in a simmering struggle with the House of Lancaster, represented by a red rose. The prize was no less than the monarchy and control of England. The Yorkists and Lancastrians were each descended from the long royal Plantagenet family. But somewhere along the way, deposings and assassinations began to supersede birthright and birth order as the way of becoming the monarch. This erosion of the rules of succession had implications far beyond the gates of the royal palace. It was vitally important to everybody's perception of how the world was organized that fathers were succeeded by sons. And the monarchy was the most important succession of all. The king was semi-divine. And uh, it, it, what was equally important is that this, this um, semi-divinity, as it were, of kings was carried on in a bloodline. The young Richard grew up amidst this whirlwind of tension and turmoil. He was just eight when his father made a claim on the throne held by Henry VI, a Lancastrian. His father was the most important subject in the realm, and he was very much uh, aware, I guess, of the manner in which his father wanted to be in, in high office but wasn't. And then in 1460, uh, his father claimed to be King of England, and that's when the wars really broke out. The 30-year struggle between the Yorkists and the Lancastrians became known as the Wars of the Roses. That was really a pivotal event in English history the equivalent of the American Civil War. I think the fascination of the War of the Roses was that it was a dynastic quarrel. It was family against family, fathers against sons, cousins against cousins. And so much was at stake. There was enormous power and money, but a whole definition of kingship and the relationship between kingship, God, and history. The conflict affected all of England's citizens, from the poorest peasants in the fields to the richest and most privileged of families. It's surprising how few members of the nobility are neutral. They're all willy-nilly drawn into this. And the longer the Wars of the Roses go on, the more likelihood that death also is 
the part of uh, defeat. Death was visited upon Richard's family soon enough. Late in 1460, Richard's father, the Duke of York, and Richard's brother Edmund were slain by Lancastrian forces of Henry VI. A few months later, Richard's eldest brother, 18-year-old Edward, avenged those deaths. Edward's troops overran a Lancastrian army at Mortimer's Cross, captured Henry VI, and ended his reign as King of England by imprisoning him in the Tower of London. After five years of bloody struggle, Edward moved quickly to consolidate his power, and in June of 1461, he was crowned King Edward IV. According to the custom of the time, he sent his younger brothers, George, the Duke of Clarence, and nine-year-old Richard to live with his most trusted ally, the Earl of Warwick. He was a very powerful, wealthy man with uh, considerable political clout. And there's no doubt about it, he was Edward IV's principal supporter. And Edward IV would not have been able to make himself king without Warwick's support. Warwick's skill at wielding power behind the throne earned him the unofficial title of Kingmaker. And so it was that young Richard Plantagenet was sent to Warwick's distant castle in Middleham to learn the arts of politics and warfare at the feet of the master. They were lessons that the ambitious youth would learn, perhaps, all too well. For three years, Richard and his brother George lived under the tutelage of their brother King Edward's chief supporter, famed kingmaker, the Earl of Warwick. But in 1464, their relatively peaceful lives were interrupted by an event well beyond their control. Their brother, King Edward, announced he had married in secret to Elizabeth Woodville, the widow of a Lancastrian, the family's sworn rivals. Elizabeth Woodville was a widow. She was older than Edward IV. She already had children by her first marriage. Not the normal person to become the Queen of England. Londoners gossiped non-stop about Elizabeth. They called her ambitious and grasping, ridiculing her large and ambitious family. Some even said she practiced witchcraft. But the talk had little effect. She was Edward's wife, and she was Queen of England. The Earl of Warwick, the man who had backed Edward in his claim to the throne, felt not only shocked, but betrayed by the sudden union, since he had been working to arrange a political marriage between Edward and a member of France's royal family. Warwick was furious, and the two men clashed openly. As a result, the king removed Richard and George from Warwick's supervision. Further insulted, Warwick turned his considerable talents to gathering support to depose Edward. By 1469, he had amassed an army and had even won over to his rebel camp, King Edward and Richard's own brother, George. Thus began a savage four-year struggle for the crown, in which the monarchy changed hands no less than three times before the final denouement. 
On Easter Sunday, 1471, King Edward IV killed Warwick and decimated his army at the Battle of Barnet. Edward's traitorous brother George surrendered and was cautiously granted forgiveness by the Yorkists. Just three weeks later, the 19-year-old Richard proved himself a masterful soldier as the Yorkist army crushed the Lancastrians once and for all at the Battle of Tewkesbury. Henry VI was deposed for the final time and again imprisoned in the Tower of London. He died a few hours afterward. Though the Yorkist chroniclers claimed he perished from pure melancholy, Others point to an altogether different killer. One has to accept that, in all probability, Richard was the person who carried the orders to the tower for Henry VI to be killed. You always killed the previous king. Very important point. If you seize power by force, you've got to make sure the other king's dead. And it was a lesson that Richard III was to remember. And a lesson taught well by Richard's mentor turned vanquished enemy the Earl of Warwick. These turbulent years of political intrigue and brutal battles may have earned Richard respect and honor, but they also left him acutely sensitive and suspicious. The need for loyalty or the need to make sure of associates and followers and so on is probably something that enters his character as a result of years of fighting. Richard's bravery in battle and unswerving loyalty to the crown prompted King Edward to reward him with the title of Duke of Gloucester. Richard was now the most powerful man in all of England's north country and was given the lands that had formerly belonged to the traitorous Warwick. To further solidify his holdings and his political power, Richard married Warwick's daughter Anne Neville in 1472 and settled into a calmer life. The following year, Richard's only child was born, named Edward after the king. Ruling England's North Country, Richard soon developed a reputation as a fair and honorable nobleman. Well, I think he probably governed in a just manner. 15th century noblemen were not necessarily renowned for their regard for the law. They were quite capable of twisting the law. And I think it was known that his, his arbitration or his law decisions were made on the merits of the case, not because it was to his advantage. Even those who suspected Richard of having a dark side capable of brutality had to marvel at his steady leadership and devotion to his expansive duties. He succeeded where others had failed, bringing a new stability to the border country, where skirmishes between the English and the Scots had been common. I think he probably did earn the respect of people who mattered in the north of England. And I think there's a lot to suggest that he was trying in this period so to um, build up his power that he was establishing himself as the head of a new great family in England, which was going to be a northern family. Before this new Camelot could begin, however, there were still a few family squabbles to iron out. By late 1477, King Edward had tired of traitorous brother George. Convicted of high treason, 
George was executed on February 18, 1478, reportedly drowned in a vat of his favorite Malmsey wine. Some said that Richard was the one who condemned George. The whether or not Richard was responsible has always been controversial. He certainly benefited from his death in, in, small, in some ways. Uh, he obviously never did anything to stop it. After over a decade of bloody turmoil, the York dynasty eased into five years of stable and unchallenged rule. Some say King Edward IV slackened too much, developing slothful habits and overindulging in rich food and drink. In 1483, this high life took its toll when unexpectedly Edward IV died, leaving behind two sons, Princes Edward and Richard. Edward, the oldest at 12, was too young to immediately ascend to the throne. Who would take command of the House of York and thus reign over England? The sudden death of England's King Edward IV in the spring of 1483 led to immediate jockeying for position among members of the royal family. The king's will had named his brother Richard as defender of the realm and protector of the heirs to the throne, 12-year-old Prince Edward and 10-year-old Prince Richard. It was a role that seemed perfectly suited to the steadfastly loyal Richard, Duke of Gloucester. Certainly before he became king, no one would dispute that he showed great loyalty to his brother, a very desirable quality, of course, in the younger brother of a king. Richard's past service to his brother was of little consequence to Elizabeth Woodville, the king's widow. Elizabeth was determined to keep the crown in the Woodville family and immediately sent for young Prince Edward, who had been living at the estate of her brother, Earl Rivers. The queen set his coronation date for Sunday, the 4th of May, and the 12-year-old prince set out for London, accompanied by his maternal uncle, Earl Rivers. They were intercepted along the way by his other uncle, Richard. They had a great night together, you know, and all was friendship. But the following morning at dawn, Richard seized Earl Rivers, went to the king and said, Rivers was a traitor, uh, I've discovered he's been plotting against you. He packed Rivers and his principal supporters up to a prison in the north and seized the person of the king and went down to London. So there was a major change then, and he did that by force. Richard installed young Edward in the royal apartments at the Tower of London to await the coronation. Fearing for her own safety and that of her family, Queen Elizabeth fled to the haven of Westminster Abbey with her other children in tow. Soon after, the royal council confirmed Richard's status as defender of the realm and protector of the future king. The lessons Richard learned long ago were being put to the test, but his most outrageous acts were yet to come. 
In early June, the Royal Council, acting on Richard's orders, persuaded Queen Elizabeth to release 10-year-old Prince Richard from Westminster Abbey, ostensibly so he could attend his brother's coronation. But Richard had other plans. On the 13th of June, three days later, he took everybody's surprise at a council meeting when he accused Lord Hastings, who'd been one of his principal allies, of plotting against him. And he took Hastings outside, and he was summarily executed. That really takes people's breath away. Government grinds to a standstill because something has snapped here, and Richard, therefore, is capable of all sorts of uh, things that have been unthinkable in the past, the most unthinkable being usurpation of the crown itself. There was more to come. The day before Prince Edward's scheduled coronation, a prominent bishop announced from the pulpit that both Princes Edward and Richard were illegitimate. With just one well-placed rumor, the princes had gone from royal heirs to bastards. It soon became apparent that it was the prelude to Richard making himself king. And by at the end, a week late, by within a week, he had got people to publicise the fact that he'd discovered that Richard, that uh, Edward V was illegitimate, so was his brother, and that they couldn't become king. And uh, other agents made sure that he was then nominated to take his place. Those that might have been opposed were probably taken by surprise completely. And he was crowned king on the 6th of July. The coronation of Richard III and his wife Anne at Westminster Abbey was a magnificent affair, attended by thousands. But Londoners were already grumbling about Richard's grab for power. Some said the princes never had a chance at the throne. The two sons of Edward IV found themselves stripped of their royal birthright and living behind the closed doors of the ominous Tower of London. With the princes under the watchful protection of his guards, King Richard and his queen set out on a procession across the countryside to meet their subjects. They seemed unruffled by the gossip swirling around them. As the warm summer of 1483 drew to a close, Richard finally possessed the title for which his mentor Warwick had prepared him all those years ago. At the age of 31, he was king of England and master of all he surveyed. Yet the whispers of conspiracy lingered. If Richard himself planted the story of the prince's illegitimacy, had he also positioned himself to preside over their undoing? And now that he was legal guardian of the princes, would their uncle be a protector or a destroyer? So wise, so young, they say, do not live long. Late summer, 1483. The newly crowned King Richard III and his queen were out touring the countryside, and the two young princes, Edward and Richard, 
were glimpsed playing outside in the lawn of the tower. They were seen shooting in the grounds, presumably bows and arrows. And that's the only reported sighting of them. They were removed, as one contemporary said, from men's sights and never seen again. Never seen again, live or dead. The disappearance of the princes ignited a firestorm of rumors. Some claimed that the boys had been murdered, smothered with pillows while sleeping. And many of the stories implicated their protector and uncle, King Richard III. Life was relatively cheap, particularly in high politics. People who lost out in battle, lost office, lost power, as often as not were killed. That was the risk they took. But the one thing that I think was unusual, unprecedented, was for two children who had not exercised political power at all. They had had no chance. And that's what marks Richard III out from any other of the usurpers of the 15th century. And people believed that he was responsible for their deaths. Richard refused to respond publicly to these allegations. That decision to keep silent would stir debate among historians for years to come. But there were more immediate concerns affecting the embattled monarch. By October of 1483, his most trusted ally was discovered to be conspiring with Henry Tudor to seize the throne and return it to the hated Lancastrians. Just a few months later, in April of 1484, his only son, Edward, Prince of Wales, died at the age of 11. Richard was disconsolate and more alone than ever before. By August of 1485, Henry Tudor had assembled an army and landed in South Wales to challenge Richard for the throne. Now the disparaging rumors about Richard repeated so often took effect. When the king hastily instructed his military captains to join him at Leicester to battle Tudor, their support was half-hearted at best. Most of Richard's officers abandoned him. August 22, 1485, the Battle of Bosworth. Realizing his only chance to redeem his honor and save the crown from the Lancastrians was to slay Henry himself, Richard III valiantly rode his steed through Henry's army. Just within sight of his nemesis, he was cut down and killed. Richard's reign as king had lasted just two years, one of the shortest in England's history. Had he won the battle at Bosworth, 
he may well have established himself in such a way and so influenced the writings about him as king that we would have looked back upon him as being one of our, you know, shame about the way he became king, but um, it was probably for the good, you know, would have been the line. Richard's death signaled an end to the Yorkist dynasty. Henry Tudor was soon crowned King Henry VII, ushering in a 70-year Tudor dynasty that once in place set out to rewrite history to fit their own agenda. In 1592, more than 100 years after Richard III was buried in an unmarked grave, Shakespeare's play Richard III debuted to enthusiastic crowds. A horse, a horse, my kingdom for a horse. For better or worse, the bard's immortalization of Richard made him one of the most infamous members of England's royalty and helped prolong a debate over Richard's action that began when he ascended to the throne in 1483. He is a monstrous but very charming character, guilty of any number of crimes. The issue today is that we don't know exactly what is the reality of this character. We don't know which crimes he was actually guilty of, particularly the most heinous of crimes, the death of the little princes. Shakespeare and Thomas More condemned Richard as a murder-happy rogue, while in later years, historians lauded his even-handed leadership and natural gift for diplomacy. Will we ever learn the truth of Richard's character and whether he actually played a role in the disappearance of his nephews, the two princes? The 1674 discovery of the skeletons of two children in the Tower of London reignited the controversy over the reign of England's King Richard III. They were excavating in the tower some steps which led up to the White Tower, which is the main keep there. And they found these bones, the bones of two young people. Four years later, Remains thought to be the same as those discovered earlier were interred in a proper burial service at Westminster Abbey. Perhaps the princes had reached their final resting place. But if these were the princes, who had ushered them unto the great beyond? Some historians point the finger directly at Richard III himself. He had decided to seize the initiative, actually make himself king, when he had no right to make himself king. Instead of waiting to see what happened, accepting fate, he decided to determine fate, to control fate, take it over. And that's what he did. He took the throne. He, he, I'm, I have no doubt in my own mind that he was responsible for the death of the two princes. But some researchers suggest others had both the means and motive to dispatch the youthful princes. There's no evidence proving the princes weren't alive when Henry VII was crowned. And if they were still prisoners, the new Tudor king had little reason to spare the lives of any potential competitors for the throne. He couldn't possibly afford to let them live because he'd married their sister. He had repealed the act of titulus regis, which made them illegitimate. They then became before their sisters in line. So he had to get rid of them if they were still alive. 
Still other scenarios have Richard's aide, Lord Buckingham, acting on his own initiative and murdering the two princes without the knowledge or blessing of the king. He was constable of the Tower of London where they were. It's argued that, of course, he would thereby have ease of access. He could have gone in, he could have caused them to be murdered. And there are contemporary records which um, indirectly accuse him of murdering them. Despite the passage of hundreds of years, public speculation about the bones at Westminster Abbey did not fade away. Finally, in 1933, an attempt was made to solve the mystery of the two princes at last. The bones were exhumed and examined by the Abbey's archivist and a leading anatomist of the day. They concluded that the bones were indeed those of two children, and due to a dark stain on one of the skulls, that it was a reasonable possibility that they had been smothered. Yet six decades later, experts still wonder if the original investigation was completely objective in its approach. One of the two people who wrote the report on that investigation admitted that all the way through the assumption was made that these remains were of the people, suppose, the two princes. The 1933 inquiry concluded that the children had died at the ages of 13 and 10, respectively, which was consistent with what is known about the princes. But it left unexplored another possibility. Throughout the 1933 investigation, the assumption appears to be made from the beginning that the remains were male. They didn't even address the possibility that they were female. Thus, an examination which was supposed to provide the final word on the fate of the two princes, instead generated at least as many questions as answers. Though modern forensic techniques could provide new vital information such as gender, precise dating, and even DNA specifics, Westminster Abbey has declined all recent requests to re-exhume the bones. I think probably everybody would like to know, would like to see these bones examined again. But I, I do sympathize with the view that perhaps at the moment we shouldn't dig them up again. Even if the two child skeletons are correctly identified, there's no way of knowing exactly when they died or who, or by what means they died or whether they were murdered or not, and if so, by whom. It may never be solved. Though Richard III never faced charges related to the disappearance of the princes while he was alive, he was brought to trial some 500 years later. There's a path of death here. The final step is Richard's murder of the two princes who posed the only immediate threat to his reign. In 1996, a three-judge panel headed by Supreme Court Chief Justice William Rehnquist heard the case against the man about whom Shakespeare said, sin, death, and hell have set their marks. I would suggest that relying on Shakespeare's play to bolster any element of the state's case is a bit like relying on Oliver Stone's movie to prove the Kennedy assassination theory. At least Stone... Holding to a standard of reasonable doubt, the panel found Richard III not guilty of the murder of the princes in a mock trial conducted at the Indiana University School of Law. 
jealousies and conjectures. Exonerated in at least one court of law, but still guilty in the eyes of many, Richard III maintains his grip on the public's imagination more than half a millennium after his spectacularly brief two-year reign. Now, as then, observers find themselves at odds over his actions, his nature, and his legacy. Was he simply a pragmatic politician of his time, making hard but just decisions to protect England's monarchy in an era of strife and turmoil? Or an amoral monster with only his own selfish interests at heart? You have a man here who did have great ability, somebody who'd been really quite admirable and, and, and perceived as being quite admirable in, 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 in um, the world's eye who, at the moment of truth in 1483, um, was not prepared to accept normal political norms. I don't believe that Richard was an evil person. I don't think there is any contemporary evidence that he was evil, or indeed that he was particularly bad. I think he was a typical 15th century nobleman, a man of his times. I suppose I'm antagonistic to him, not because he's a failure necessarily, but because Richard is uh, not just putting the knife into his brother's sons, he's really doing down the whole Yorkist dynasty. Richard III would, of course, want to be remembered as a wise and just monarch, a brave hero in the field of battle. But the disappearance of the two princes, who were directly under his protection, both in fact and in Shakespeare's play, has tainted his legacy. I think the fascination in the death of these little princes is the fascination of how far does a psychopath go? What is the degree to which ego and will and intelligence, divorced from feeling and morality, can go? What are the boundaries of human destructiveness? Because then and now, uh, hapless children, innocent children are the ultimate victims. And it shows a point beyond which there's no return. Perhaps the life of Richard III continues to capture our interest because of the warnings implicit in its telling about the seductive nature of power and how easy it is to go too far. And how often we learn that great men are sometimes greatly flawed men as we go in search of history.